Welcome to the Paranormal Pendle podcast, coming to you from the heart of Pendle Witch Country in the northwest of England. My name is Craig Bryant, author, investigator, and collector of stories. Join me as we take a journey into the paranormal, UFO sightings, cryptozoology, and big cats. This is the Paranormal Pendle podcast. And welcome to episode eight of Paranormal Pendle, broadcasting to the Paranormal UK Radio Network at paukradio.com. My guest on this episode is Philip Mantle. Philip is a long standing UFO researcher and author from the UK. He was formerly the director of investigations for the British UFO Research Association and MUFON representative for England. He is a regular contributor to Outer Limits magazine and is co-host of Inside the Outer Limits radio show, which is also available on the Paranormal UK radio network. He's also the founder of Flying Disc Press. So, Philip, great to have you on. Thank you so much for coming on today. Um, Would it be possible, could we start, go right back to the beginning and, and could you tell us a bit about how you got into UFOs and UAPs in the first place? Yeah, absolutely, Craig. My, my pleasure. I mean... I, I can go back as far as I can remember. Um, and I always had an interest in a certain number of things. Um, one was astronomy, the space race, horror films, a little bit of science fiction, but a lot of interest in all things that we would probably class as paranormal. And uh, I was absolutely fascinated by it all. And I was looking in some ways, Craig, because my best friend who lived just around the corner, <clears throat> I was brought up on a council estate, but right across the road was his grandma. And she, we lived in an area just outside of Leeds in West Yorkshire. And she used to go to the local spiritualist church, a town called Morley, which is just outside of Leeds. So, you know, from the age of about 13, 14, I used to tag along with her. And it, I was absolutely you know, fascinated. I didn't necessarily agree with their conclusions and what they were saying, but um, I, I, I nonetheless found it, you know, fascinating to sit there and listen and take it all in. You know, at that age, we're a bit, bit of a sponge still, you know. And, um, and of course, there was no internet in those days. If you wanted to find anything else out, you had to read. And um, my mum was always a great reader, although she liked novels and things like that. So I read a few books. And one book I read, which wasn't paranormal, it was an astronomy book. Um, it had one chapter in it on UFOs, basically a bit, a bit dismissive. But it kind of, you know, got grabbed my attention, if you like. So after leaving high school, in 1974, it seems like a long time ago, you know, with no idea what I was going to do in what direction I was going to take. You know, I had one job and then another. But around all this, I still had this fascination for the paranormal. And in, in over the winter of 1978 and into 1979, I went to work in what was still then West Germany and didn't speak the language. So I asked my mum to send me some books. And somehow she managed to get a whole box full of UFO books. So rather than sitting by the TV on a night in West Germany, which 
wouldn't have made any difference. I couldn't understand it anyway. I would read. So by the time I came back home, I had a, a, a bit more of an understanding about the subject. I'd also seen, you know, the movie Close Encounters in the meantime. And I had an aunt who lived just around the corner as well. On one night, and it's still published now, in Leeds they have what's called the Yorkshire Evening Post newspaper. And she brought it round and she showed me the classified ads. And there was a little ad for the formation of the Yorkshire UFO Society was coming that Sunday in Leeds at a place called Centenary House, North Street, Leeds, at, at two o'clock. So, as you may know, in, in those days on a Sunday, though, everything used to shut. You'd, you know, you'd one bus an hour. So I got the bus into Leeds, I found this place, and there was about 20, 30 people there. And it had been started by two brothers, Graham and Mark Birdsell. Graham was a bit older than Mark, and they'd already been involved for a number of years. And they put on a presentation and I just sat there and I felt like I felt like I'd found my niche in life, Craig. Yeah. Plus, they also had a table where I could buy some more books, <laughs> you know, so that was even better. So I sat there for about six months, not saying a word. Again, they had monthly meetings. I joined the Yorkshire UFO Society. I think it was something like like two pound for the whole year, you know. And, and that's how it all started, Craig. You know, had I not, had my aunt not seen that advertisement that night, it, it would probably never have happened. But, um, you know, that's that's how it all began. So you sort of went off down the UFO and the UAP route um, professionally, if, if that's the right right word to use. Do you still have a um, an interest in the paranormal in general and in ghosts and, and that sort of stuff as well? Yeah, I think, you know, once you have that interest, it never leaves you. You may not be as in-depth as you you are on other subjects, but it is something that is always there in the background, and I will still read the occasional thing about it. I'm not up to date, I'll be honest. Um, I'm too busy with other with the other side of things. Yeah, sure. But it nonetheless still interests me. Um, and cutting kind a of long story short, I've, I've witnessed what some people would call, I suppose, psychic phenomena okay. at first hand. Um, so I don't need anyone to convince me that these things are uh, authentic. Uh, I would perhaps differ on other people's opinions on the nature and origin of these, this phenomena. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But then, you know, that I, I disagree with pretty much everybody anyway, so it <laughs> doesn't really matter. And... I've experienced it myself. I've, I've sadly over the last twenty years, I've had a, a number of um, he serious health scares, and in twenty sixteen, I had what I call, or what you would describe as a near death experience, uh, although I didn't actually die. Um, and I've just written it up for Outer Limits magazine. It's only a short piece because it, it didn't happen for long, and. Um, you know, I'd talked about it before, but I suddenly realised I'd never put it down in writing. So that, that's in the current issue of Outer Limits magazine. So I don't need anyone to convince me about these things. No. Like I say, I would just probably disagree with some people's opinions of what the nature and origin of them are. But uh, like I said, I'm not up to date. I don't, I don't claim to be as knowledgeable on the paranormal as a lot of people, but I do 
and we'll always keep a, a passing interest in it. It, it is a, a fascinating topic, whichever way you want to look at it. And there's like the UFO phenomenon, there is something there for everyone. There yeah. really is. Could you just give us a bit of a teaser then about the, the near-death experience that you have? Oh, I'll tell you it in full, Craig. No, no problem. I mean, one thing that runs in our family is uh, heart disease. Okay. It killed my father at the age of 48, killed my only brother. Uh, he was older than me. And, and in, in August, August the 21st, 1999, at approximately 10.45 p.m., I was in, in bed with my wife and I had a, a near fatal heart attack. So, you know, I was in and out of hospital, uh, ten, jumping forward 10 years in time. In 2009, I went down with heart failure. That nearly killed me several times. After, after someone said, how, did, how, did, how have you not managed to die? I said, well, look, I've, sh I've shook hands with the Grim Reaper. Best thing to do is keep your hands a bit sweaty and he can't, he can't, he can't, he, you know, it slips out of your grasp. And then in 2016, uh, I came home from work one night, felt great. I had an attack of what they call uh, arrhythmia, cardiac arrhythmia, where your heart really speeds up. It went off like a buzzsaw, Craig. Mm. Uh, because of the heart failure, I'd, I'd had previously a pacemaker with a defib fitted. And I'm literally in my kitchen. I was actually cooking the dinner for me and my wife at the time. And it was a bit like a soap opera moment. I grasped my chest with one hand, trying to hold myself up with the other hand. And just as my knees were about to hit the floor, I'm thinking, this is it. The defib in my pacemaker fired. And it reset my heart rhythm and saved my bacon. But all the while this is happening... I'm viewing this as a third party at the other end of the kitchen. Wow. Quite dispassionately, Craig, you know, yeah. no emotion. It's just like maybe watching something on YouTube, you know? Yeah. And, and I was higher up. I'm not saying I was in this up by the ceiling. All, all I can say is I'm looking down from a higher vantage point. And I watched it all happen. And um, I was in and out of hospital for the next few weeks. But as soon as I could, I told my wife about it. And she's not interested in any of this, Craig. You know, not, 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 nothing. And um, she shrugged her shoulders. You know, she was just happy that I was alive, never mind anything else. Yeah, I can imagine. But, so, the thing about your pacemaker, yeah, has a recorder in it. Right, okay. So they downloaded everything in the hospital so they could tell me the exact second mm. that my pacemaker, sorry, my defib fired. Wow. And at no time did my heart stop. I never lost consciousness or anything of this nature. It just went off like a buzz of zzz. And had it not stopped, you know, that would have been the end of me. So sort of looking at yourself then as a third party, I mean, that must really have changed your, your view on just everything, just life in general, what happens oh, afterwards. No, no, it didn't have any effect on me whatsoever. Okay. I mean, nothing. I mean, you know, I, I, I was more concerned about staying alive. Yeah. Because, you know, I'd, I knew about the heart attack. I knew what that felt like. I knew what heart failure felt like. And I knew why I had it, because of the damage that the heart attack did to my heart, later on caused heart failure. 
But the hospital couldn't tell me, or any of the specialists that saw, why this attack of arrhythmia happened. You know, no reason for it. So I was more worried about that happening again. I mean, just an hour before this, Craig, I'd been driving up the motorway, the M62 coming home from work in rush hour. Had that happened at that point, it would have been carnage. Yeah. I wouldn't have been able to control the car and get it onto the hard shoulder. So you are once you once you your defib fires, you are automatically banned from driving for six months anyway, and you have to surrender your license, which makes perfect sense to me. If it fires twice within a year, you are banned from driving for three years. And again, it makes sense. I was more fearful of this happening again. Not that I was driving or anything like that, but I didn't know what had caused it. So this near-death experience, for want of a better phrase, just was something that happened, didn't change my outlook on anything. I'm not a believer in life after death or anything of that nature. But it just reaffirmed my, I won't call it knowledge, but my, my well, I, yeah, I call it a, a bit of knowledge that paranormal phenomena, plural, does happen. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not a myth. It's not some lunatic making up funny stories to scare the children. You know, it, it does happen. We only disagree, like I said earlier, about, the nature and origin. I mean, I told this to a friend of mine who is a an avid believer in life after death, spiritualism, and he said, you must have died, Philip, and it was pulling you back. I said, I didn't die. I, you know, my heart did not stop. I didn't lose consciousness. I'm just recounting what I can recollect, and I, I'm looking at it as if it's it's nothing, you know, yeah. no, no emotions, you know, you know, we've all watched YouTube videos of some, you know, of a cat, you know, yeah. whatever, you know, just like, well, that was interesting, but, you know, and then bang, my wife, you know, I staggered into the living room. My wife was on her way out because she'd heard me shout for her. And it was then back to reality, if you like, phone for the ambulance. The paramedic was there within no time at all. Yeah. And off to the hospital again. You know, I know that routine very, very well. So well, make of it what you will, Craig, you yeah. know. Uh, and like I said, I've, I've just, I just thought the other, you know, a couple of weeks back, I've never actually written this down. So yeah. I wrote it down yeah. and it's, it's, it's without a limits magazine. Yeah. That's a very interesting story, Philip. It really is. And, and it's, it's interesting actually how you sort of view it. You know, I mean, some people would see it as a very religious experience. Some people would see it as a very, um, I mean, you've obviously seen it as a very paranormal experience, something that you can't explain. You know, some, some people would, would see it differently, but you know, thanks for sharing that. So that, that is a really interesting story. Can we get, Back onto the UFO stuff. Um, you mentioned you got into the British UFO Research Association. Was that quite a while ago? Can you tell us tell us a bit about yeah, that? Yeah. Well, like I said, I joined um, the Yorkshire UFO Society at its inception, sort of 1979. We were quite fortunate, Craig, that for whatever reason, in the early 1980s, we had a lot of UFO sightings in the Yorkshire Dales. Yeah. particularly around the market town of Skipton and one particular place in, in general, which was Carlton Moor. And of course, from Carlton Moor, we could drive over the moors to that mysterious land they call Lancashire. I think you're familiar with, you know, 
we could see it in the distance on you know with a big cloud over it <laughs> <laughs> so it's for whatever reason, in, in and around those hills and dales, which, which overlapped into Lancashire as well, and surrounding areas, we had a lot of sightings. And we made ourselves as, as visual as possible. We had leaflets that we put on pub notice boards, reference libraries, we'd leave it at police stations, you name it. And somehow a lot of people who had these sightings managed to find their way to us. And one thing we used to do was say, how did you find out about us? How did you know to phone us on this number? How did you know to write to this address? So we knew what was working. And um, there was a time, literally, Craig, it's certainly, you know, maybe 83, 84, that we were overwhelmed. We had so much information coming in. Uh, we didn't really know which way to turn at times. So... You know, I spent, you know, a good nine or ten years, I think it was, at, at the Yorkshire UFO Society. And I joined what was called, still is, the British UFO Research Association. We, The Yorkshire UFO Society was mainly in and around Yorkshire. Buford, of course, was a national organisation. And I joined them and I was asked to join there. They used to have like an organising committee that ran the society. So I joined, I eventually became their press officer, their conference organizer, and at one point also their director of investigations. And we managed to, to you know, rise to the dizzy heights of about a thousand members, you know, mid 1990s. We had some very large conferences that we had, um, we had located, located at Hallam University in Sheffield. We moved it around for a while, but then we, we settled there. And they were a sellout, you know, they were, they were packed houses. And I was the press officer as well. And I used to have about a hundred, you know, volunteer UFO researchers, stroke investigators under our wing around the country. So things would come in, I'd either get on the phone to them or I would send it in the post or whatever. Uh, fax it, you know, I was really up to date with this this monster of a thing next to me that was a fax machine, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember them. Yeah, and then thankfully we got, you know, emails started to come in. Um, and, and, I, and I stuck that until, you know, the late 1990s, and then, you know, I, my, my children were growing up then, so I had to have a break. Yeah. Though I didn't, I didn't come out of the subject, I just left the society behind i'm a i'm a i'm an honorary life member of Bufora, and uh, i just carried on on my own and i have done you know pretty much ever since yeah can we just go back then to carlton moor and skipton because um if anybody gets a map out and looks at, at the northwest of england and and sort of you know west yorkshire east lancashire you write in what you say. It's an area which sort of overlaps. Skipton is only about 15 miles away from, from where I live. Um, you'll know that Pendle Hill is very close to, to this area. And in fact, geology-wise, it's all linked, isn't it? All the way up. It's it's the spine of, of Britain, as they call it. Um, there's been a lot of UFO activity in around the Pendle area and certainly around here um, and over towards places like Burnley and Corn, which, again, are not a million miles away from Skipton and um and that area of Carlton Moor so I'm really interested if, if if there's anything more you can 
tell us about that area? The village of Carlton is, is pretty much something or nothing. When you drive through it, there's a swan pub, of which we did frequent on occasion. Just carry on past it, and then you literally go up the hill onto Carlton Moor. It's mainly, you know, heather, because it's for game birds. So it's not sheep or cattle or arable farming. And, and you, you go over a cattle grid that they have, still they have there. And then you get on the moor. There's nothing there of any description. And like you say, if you just carry on on that road, it takes you over into Lancashire and, and to your neck of the woods. And we had, we had a bit of everything there, to be, to be fair, Craig. A lot of the sightings were these strange lights, but I'm not talking of little lights, you know, a thousand mile away in the sky that could be anything. I'm talking up close and personal. I'll give you one example. Can't remember the date, so don't ask. It's in the 80s. On that moor, there used to be a cattery. And the guy that owned it got in touch with us and we went to speak to him. And he said, on a night, I have a routine. You know, before I go to bed, I do one last check of A, B, and C. It means him going outside of his house. And he said, I've seen to the cats. So you know, do whatever, whatever checks he has to do. And he says, I turn around to go back towards the house. And he says, behind my house, and I've been there, and it, it falls away into the valley. He says, were five dinner plates, orange dinner plates, doing aerial acrobatics. That were the words he was using. He said, I am, and, and he's talking again up close, not little lights, you know, way up, way in the distance, literally light. And they said that he said, I've never ever seen anything like it in my life. One of our members also was um, Police Sergeant Tony Dodd, who's, who's now um, no longer with us. Tony and one of his colleagues one night, they used to go up on the moors because they got better radio reception. And an object came across their path at low, low level. He said it had like three, can I, how can I say, half ball shaped things underneath it. Yeah. And as it went past them, Tony, on instinct maybe, switched on the blue lights of the helicopter, of the police car. And he said, this thing turned and came back. And that got to, that's what got Tony interested and, and he joined the you know the Yorkshire UFO Society. He even photographed two of the lights close up on the moor one night. He, uh, he wasn't he wasn't happy with the quality of the picture. So he invested in some camera gear and some high-speed film. And a few few years later, on his way. Uh, from Grassington, where he used to live, round the back roads to the Devonshire Arms pub to meet Graham Birdsell. He was coming down the road, and in, in, the, in the distance was Beamsley Beacon, a well-known point, and he saw this thing in the sky. He, he stopped the car. His wife, Pauline, was with him. He gave her the binoculars. He got out the camera, took two pictures, and then the third one, he sort of wedged his elbows on the top of his car, took the third one, and he captured this thing. He said it looked like a, a, a top-shaped thing with, with lots of little lights that glowed all, all at the same time. And he's, you literally see it just before it goes behind Beamsley Beacon. So that, that'll give you some idea. What we also did, Craig, uh, we, we did a, a week-long sky watch on Caltimore in a caravan. 
And uh, yeah, you, yeah, you can laugh. You know, a lot of funny things did happen. And we put we put our own signposts up either side of them all, pointing to where we were. And we did some local press, and people came out and reported it. Even you mentioned, I'm sure it was, was it Cone? Cone, yeah. Yeah, Barn Oldswick, that sort of area. But that's it, Barn Oldswick. We even yeah. had a, a, a gentleman from there, from Barn Oldswick, I'm not sure if he'd been a mayor, local mayor in one of the towns around that area at one point. But anyway, the, the one story that stands out just because of its peculiarity, there was like a, we call them an elderly couple, you know, retired couple. They drove up onto the moat specifically to see us and they told us a story. It was going back a few years, but not that far back in time. And they used to, the, in Skipton itself or, or nearby, there was no big supermarket, but there was one a few miles drive away. So once a fortnight, same time, same day, they would go to, you know, drive to this supermarket, same road. They're coming back one night and the husband says to his wife, oh, look, they've built a new factory. And she says, oh, yeah. And he says, set back from the road is this shaped thing, you know, with all these windows, all glowing of light. And says, oh, fantastic. Of course, two weeks later, they go back to the supermarket, coming back on the same route. And guess what? There is no factory. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't exist. And, and, and they couldn't make head and a tail of it. You know, it was the same route. They've always they'd lived in the area pretty much all their life. And, and they came out of their way to tell us this story, as most people did, in fact, that week we were there. Yeah. And we also, for example, Mark Birdsell and I got a letter from someone in a little village nearby. I can't remember the name of it now. And we spoke to this gentleman. So we said, we'll come and talk to you. We'll come. We'll come. And when we got there, the village was like nine or ten houses. You know, it wasn't a village as you and I would probably describe it. And even though we got his letter with the number, whatever, there was no numbers on any of the doors. So we just knocked on the first one and I thought somebody's bound to know who he is. And this lady answered and we asked for Mr. So-and-so. And she said, have you come about the ghost dog? No, what's that? And she told us the story that every now and again, these two red lights would float down through the village. And those were the eyes, of course, of, of the ghost dog. And, and of course, in, in actual fact, all they were seeing was these two red lights float, uh, uh, you know, and they weren't the back lights of a car or anything like that. Um, so once once we learned that, we then started asking other questions. And it was amazing what what we, other paranormal happenings you would you would, you know, come across by chance. Had she not told us that, we would probably have never asked the extra questions. But it, it just fascinated the whole area ought to be classed as haunted. Yeah. Uh, not by any one thing, just haunted. It really, it really did. So can you tell us a bit about how you got involved in MUFON? Yeah, absolutely. When I, when, I, when I started at the Yorkshire UFO Society a few years down the line, um, we used to communicate with as many other UFO groups that we could, not just in the UK, but around the world. And that was my job, you know, and, and we'd, we'd started printing our own little magazine at this point. 
Um, so we would, you know, exchange publications with groups and so on. One of which, of course, was MUFON. And um, I, got, I, I got on friendly terms with the man that ran it at that point. MUFON is an international organization, still going today. The chap that ran it in those days was called Walter Andrus. Nice guy, very nice gentleman. And um, as I moved from the UFOS to Bufora, the conferences that we, we were hosting just got bigger and bigger. And uh, of course, I invited uh, Walter Andrus to, to make a presentation at one of the conferences. And it was at that point he asked me if I would become their representative for England, not the UK, just for England. And I said, yeah, it was, it was an honour. I still had enough uh, spare time, if you like, to fit that in as well. And uh, so if any sightings got reported to MUFON, they were then fed back to me. And, and, and I'd still use the Bufora network to investigate them. It's just that MUFON would get a copy of any final reports. And um, I was, you know, uh, honoured to go to uh, the United States in 1996 and speak at the MUFON Symposium in Greensboro, North Carolina. And um, I was with them again, you know, until the, the late 1990s when I had to take a, a break, um, you know, growing family, a proper job, <laughs> you know, these things that get in the way. Um, but, uh, and, and, you know, I, I was honoured to, to be part of, of, of the network and uh, it's still going today and I, and I wish you all the best. I'm interested in what you think about some of the more famous cases then, Philip, because uh, if, if we start pretty close to home, um, there's been a lot of UFO activity around the area of Todmorden. I'm sure you, you, hmm. you're familiar with, with Todmorden. And in fact, there's been some uh, quite <coughs> activity of late in and around Todmorden, not necessarily related to UFOs, um, uh, but related to... Um, you know, possible big cat sightings and animal mutilations and that sort of thing. But obviously the the very famous case from there was the Alan Godfrey case. And I'm just wondering whether you've done any research into that and what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, it's interesting. It's very quite coincidentally you should mention that because I've met Alan, you know, several times um, and I've communicated with him, you know, online on occasion. And I think it was three years ago, Alan wrote his own book about his experience and what happened to him afterwards. Um, for those that are not aware, it was November 1980. Alan uh, was a serving police officer in his patrol car, just finishing his night shift when he encountered something on Burnley Road. Um, it blocked the road in front of him. It was, again, a top-shaped thing. He said the top of it had like windows or panels, dark panels, but the bottom part was spinning, was rotating. He tried to phone, sorry, radio back to the police station, couldn't get through. So he picked out his, his clipboard that he carried with him and drew it. Now he's, he's in the patrol car, which is stationary at this point. Next thing he remembers, he's several hundred yards further down the road, now driving the patrol car. No recollection of that, he turned around, it had been raining that night, but where this object had been, the, the tarmac of the road was dry. When he got back to the police station, he was late. He also had a, a burn mark on the instep of his left foot and his police boot was split. Mm. 
So eventually he told his superiors, uh, you know, they, they asked him to make a formal written report, which he did. And it was some months later that uh, Alan was in contact with UFO researchers when they asked Alan if he would like to undergo regressive hypnosis. He rather reluctantly agreed. Uh, they hired two professional psychologists, not, not hypnotherapists, not, you know, not stage magicians or anything like that, two professionals, and they, they put Alan under regression, and each time they put a block on him remembering it. So when it was all filmed, they, they showed Alan the, the, the video that they'd taken. And um, on, on, the, on the video, which I've seen and watched, you see him talking about driving along the road, seeing this thing. And then all of a sudden, he throws his hands up in like an X-shaped fashion over his eyes, shouting, there's a light, there's a light. You know, he's obviously quite alarmed. Cutting a long story short, he goes on to talk about seeing this man we call Joseph, who looks almost, well, it's a white man in a white robe with a beard and a little skull cap. He then undergoes some kind of medical procedure, shall we say, and he sees these little ugly creatures. He's actually seeing Grimace on the video. And this is one for all the paranormal guys and the folklorists out there. There's even a black dog. There's even a black dog there. And in fairness to Alan, he'll say, look, Philip, I saw that thing on the road that morning. Had I had a brick, I could have thrown it at it and it would have gone plunk. Uh, As for the hypnosis, you make of it what you will. Now, Alan put out a little statement. This is when it comes right up to date, just recently. But he signed with a film producer. And I got in touch with this film producer, so, sorry, film director, and managed to get an interview with him. So on a short interview, what happened, I don't know, this again, in 1993, uh, the movie Fire in the Sky was released, which is based on the abduction of Travis Walton in 1976 in America. What a lot of people are not aware of is that the production company had two movies that they were thinking of making. Could only make one, it was either Alan Godfrey or Travis Walton, and Travis Walton got the tip. One of those involved with that uh, was also a documentary maker, and he did a documentary on abductions, and he came over and interviewed Alan. But he kept in touch with him on and off ever since. And once Alan wrote his own book, he then has now taken the rights to that and is in the process. I think he's going to write it this summer. The screenplay will be written. And he is, a, I'm not going to give out his name, although Alan did. That, that's such a, he is a, well, let's put it this way. I had a look on, on, online and his earnings, his films that he's made, you'll, you'll know them when you see the names. They have earned at the box, of, box office approximately half a billion pounds. Wow. So he's not some small fry director, you know, uh, and I spoke to him and wished him well. Uh, I managed to get a little interview. I asked him questions he couldn't answer, like, are you going to film it in Dominant, you know? <laughs> are you, are you going to use, you know, are they going to speak with a Northern accent? I said, 
you know, Tom Cruise obviously can't play it, you know. So, but, you know, I, and I've said to Alan, great, mate, because Alan's been not been in the best of health no. in the last couple of years. So I said, I, I really hope it happens for you. And I really do. Because I, in, in my own humble opinion, I think they maybe have made the right decision, you know, and using Travis Walton's. I always thought Alan's encounter would come across better on the small screen rather than the large screens. It's much more intimate. Yeah. You know, and um, that's exactly, things have changed since 1993. Of course, there were no streaming services then. There was no Netflix or Amazon. That's so right. that is that is probably where it will go. And it may not be just a one-off. It could be a, a little series. Yeah. I mean, I'm... I'm- Delighted for Alan because I mean I've I've done I've I've done some research into the case and I've listened to some of his interviews and he always seemed to to you know suggest that it didn't do his career in the police force an awful lot of good. Um, a lot of people didn't believe him. A lot of people thought he was a bit bit bonkers. Um, he sort of had the Mickey taken out of him by his superior officers, um, and it. it I always got the impression that he was a little bit bitter about what had happened to him. Absolutely. That's all featured in Alan's book. He tells yeah. it he tells it all for the first time. We, we, were, we were all pretty much aware of that. Yeah. But what is peculiar is, bearing in mind, he got permission from his chief constable to go public with this. So he yeah. didn't just appear in the, you know, in the newspapers. Uh, and it, it, it backfired on him, um, unfortunately. Alan was, you know, had commendations as a police officer, no nonsense, like he is now. He's a, he's a you know, a straight talking northern fella, and uh, aren't we all, Philip? Yeah, and and I, I wish him well. I really do. Yeah, I and, do. As, I do as well. And I'd, I'd I'd love to interview him. I really would. Um, uh, you know, who knows? Maybe sometime in the future that that might happen. Um, but it is an interesting case. What do you think about? Let's just put one out of the air. What do you think about Rendlesham Forest, for instance? Because that's another well-known one, isn't it? Yeah, what a, what a lot of people aren't aware of in, is is that the area around there uh, in Suffolk has been a hotspot of military technology testing for decades. Literally, I think it's where they first tested radar, uh, for example, at the beginning, you know, during the, the Second World War. Um, so it is a, as a location, it's just fascinating. Uh, and again, we go back just after what, you know, Alan's encounter, we, it's almost a month, really. It's, it's you know, just after Christmas, uh, in 1980, when a series of events, some say it's over two nights, some say it's over three. Certainly the first night involved uh, Sergeant Jim Penniston and his colleague John Burroughs. Again, for those who are not aware, there was two RAF bases there that were leased to the American military, RAF Bentwaters and RAF Woodbridge, and in between was Rendlesham Forest, public land, you know. And some lights were seen to be descending into Rendlesham Forest, which sparked the, the interest, and a, a security team was sent with three people. One stayed with the vehicle, um, Burroughs and Penniston went into the forest, and I have I have no doubt whatsoever, Craig, that they encountered something uh, totally bizarre. Uh, if you speak to both gentlemen, Jim Penniston will tell you that he 
came in close contact to begin with, with a, a triangular shaped object about the size of a, you know, a big saloon car of its day. Uh, it was dark, it had red lights, under, sorry, red lights on top, blue lights underneath, and it had a series of symbols down one side. He claims he touched it, it was warm. He walked around it for, he says 45 minutes, and he drew it in his notebook. However, just literally yards away is John Burroughs, his colleague. And he says, I never saw any of that. I didn't see no triangular shaped vehicle. All I saw were these strange lights. I didn't see my colleague walk around it or touch anything, you know, and, and this thing then, whatever it was, moved off through the forest and they took off after it. And after 20, 30 minutes, they gave it up as, as a bad job. It was gone. And they went back to base and reported it. Some say two nights later, some say one night later, Colonel Holt, the deputy base commander, is on a, a pre-Christmas dinner at the base when someone approaches him and says, Colonel, what, it's back? He says, what's back? He says, the UFO. He gets changed because he's in civilian clothing, picks a bunch of men, they go into the forest, and he takes with him his dictaphone, you know, little tape recorder. Yeah. Uh, and doesn't have it running all the time. It's infrequent. And he claims he sees this thing that explodes. There's lights in the sky, shooting beams of lights down at their feet. Also on the weapon storage area. And when I say weapon storage area, I'm talking nuclear weapons, which we, as the general public, didn't know was there in 1980. But if you remember the Green and Common ladies protesting, if they'd have known they were there, they'd have been you know, yeah, <laughs> been there as well. Yeah. And, um, mm. um, the, you know, Colonel Holt sent out a memo that was sent both to the MOD and to his superiors in the United States Air Force, and nothing happened. Nobody came, there's no feedback, no response, no nothing. So the story of Rendlesham died. Local people were aware of it. It was Dot Street and Brenda Butler, who were local UFO investigators. So there was rumours, but nothing else. It was just a rumour. There was nothing to see. In 1983, uh, under the Freedom of Information Act in the United States, a copy of the Holt memo was obtained by UFO researchers there. And that, you know, broke, broke the news of what happened. And the rest, as you say, is, is history. Now, you know, a lot of people will argue about what happened or what didn't happen and how many nights and how many people were involved. It's a fascinating account in its own right. These two gentlemen... Burroughs and Penistine undoubtedly encountered something phenomenal. Yeah. But exactly what, even they don't know. No. They disagree on what they saw. It's not as if you and I saying, well, I saw that thing and it had three windows. And you say, well, I saw the same thing, but it only had two windows. Yeah. No. The, one of them saying, I saw this craft. Another one saying, all I saw was strange lights. Yeah. And they're literally only yards apart. Which, which is the odd bit about the... Um, the account, isn't it? Well, you know, what, what both gentlemen will, will say is that, you know, whatever this thing was, it could make you yeah. believe what it wanted you to believe. Perceive it in a different different manner. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's their opinion. I, I, I agree in a kind of way, but, but that's a whole long story. 
but nonetheless, they saw something peculiar without a shadow of a doubt. You know, they really did. Um, they claimed they found marks where this thing had been on the on the ground. The police were called out later that night. They, they weren't impressed by the marks on the ground, but there, there was nothing for them to see. Whatever had happened was over and done with at that point. Yeah. Given the uh, fact that there's so much um, military activity in that area, do you think it could have been something military? Do you think because it, I mean, you know, it's on the east coast, isn't it? And and we know that all up and down the east coast over the years, there's been um, quite a bit of military activity, especially from from Russians, for instance. I mean, they're they're well known for, you know, pinging our airspace, especially over Scotland, and testing our response times for fighters and and all that sort of thing. And, and there was one not not too long ago, I believe. Um, do you think it could be something military, or do you think it is something more? Um, otherworldly, shall we say? If we look at it from a military perspective, or we'll say man-made perspective, for want of a better phrase, I have a, I have a colleague called Russell Callahan. He likes to remind people that part of the base's responsibilities, apart being apart from being on the front line, as they had eight, they had you know eighteen tank busters there. Mm. At this point in in history, the solidarity movement was, you know, on the march in Poland. Russian tanks were on the border and it, anything could have kicked off. Yeah, However, yeah. also part of their uh, remit, if you like, was they were a space recovery station. And they even had a replica of um, the, the United States space mod, module, spacecraft that was splashed down in the ocean. They had one, okay. you know, a model, you know, a full size thing that they used to train with. Right. Also, of the opinion that somebody was playing what we'd call silly buggers, <laughs> and they used that, and and these guys fell for it. Um, just recently, just this year, I believe it was, uh, an Englishman by the name of Nick Redfern, who mm. lives in the United States, uh, penned a book. I can't remember the name of it, and I, I've read it as well. Please forgive me. Uh, but his idea is that this was a a military test of the base's um, security. Right. And that um, drugs were used, mm. uh, all kinds of lasers, equipment that we're not familiar with, you yeah. know, to test the base's security. In other words, the strange balls of light. Our own MOD did a study on UFOs called Project Condine, mm. finished in 2000. They came to the conclusion that UFOs are strange balls of plasma. Nick is of the argument that they can now manufacture this plasma, uh, you know, artificially and use it as a kind of a psychological warfare weapon. So right. you get too close to it, it's electrically charged and it scrambles your brains. In other words, you'll see things that are not there. Right, so it's like hallucinogenic yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. Combined yep. with the hallucinogenic drugs that were sprayed into the air and lasers and other things. So there are sort of two man-made ways of looking at it. Uh, and what, what is interesting, when you go back to when the case first broke in the, in the sort of 1983, that was one of the theories that was, was floating around even then. Some people argued that Colonel Holt seemed to handpick the men that went out into the woods with him, rather than you lot. You know, come with me, that they were picked out for a reason. Colonel Holt denies that, of course. Um, but he, who knows? 
who know all I can all I would argue is that even if you go down that route something quite bizarre did happen that night yeah, yeah. why would you carry out a test of a nuclear base when just across the water in Eastern Europe, things could have kicked off at any time. These gentlemen there, although the, the ones involved were not the necessarily the fighting men, they were base security, but they would have been in charge of protecting any foreign forces getting anywhere near that area. And yeah. they were all trained to do that. They were all trained military men as well. Um, so it doesn't quite make a lot of sense in, you know, why, why not try it out on some little base in the middle of nowhere somewhere where, you know, but I don't know. So I, yeah. I think it's one of those stories that's going to, you know, the story that's forever going to give, give you things. There's always something new going to crop up. And again, just this year, there has been three lots of anonymous statements go online claiming to show photographs from that incident. But of course, it's anonymous. We don't know who it is. Uh, and they're pretty much being dismissed. But however, it still carries on because those that were involved do claim that film and photographs were taken. Uh, so we shall see. Yeah. No, that's, that's an interesting take. I've never heard that, that aspect of it before. I found, um, when I was doing some research into you, Philip, I found a, a, a piece that you'd written recently for um, a well-known uh, British newspaper um, about the uh, famous alien autopsy, uh, the one that's been debunked on a on a number of occasions, and I'm just interested in your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, again, we go back to my days at Bufora when I was their press officer, and in 1993, a letter landed on my desk. Bear in mind, there's no email then, you know. So, and it was from a company in London called the Merlin Group. And they were just asking if we could assist them in the making of a UFO documentary. And uh, I responded, told them what we could and couldn't provide. For example, Buford didn't have access to photographs and films, but I knew companies that did. And um, so a few letters and uh, faxes exchanged. And then I, I finally spoke to the, the gentleman on the, the, the letter. It was called Ray Santilli. It was the owner of the company. And we tossed some ideas backwards and forwards. Then out of the blue, the subject changed, Craig. It wasn't, oh, we're going to make a UFO documentary. It was, well, you know, Philip, I've actually got film of the UFO crash at Roswell and the aliens being dissected. I said, well, that's caught my attention. Simple question. Show me. Uh. You've made this claim, not me. Show me. It went, yes, I can, no, I can't, yes, I can, no, I can't. In 1993, Fire in the Sky came out, a movie. I was hired to help promote it in the UK. One of the things I did, I put on a presentation for um, uh, Thomas Walton and Mike Rogers in London. And, you know, they put on a marvellous presentation, promote the film, and the location of this wasn't far from Ray Santilli's offices. So I invited him along. And I met him for the first time there, and he said, told me the story that had been, the year before he'd been out in the States. His, his main business was music. He had a big collection of memorabilia as well, and he was looking for old bits of film and photos of the rock stars before they were famous. 
They claimed he met an old boy, put a piece of Elvis footage from him. And uh, before he flew home, this old boy come back and said, well, if you think that were interesting, you know, before I was a freelance cameraman, I was in the military. And in 1947, I was flown to Roswell, filmed the crash, the dead aliens. And he said, I had to hold some of the, the, the film back for special processing. But by the time I contacted Washington to come and pick it up, nobody replied. So I just kept it. And he says, I like the way you do business, cash, don't mention my name. And he claimed he'd done a deal. So I did again, I said, that's a great story, Ray. Show me. Yes, I can. No, I can't. So I said, in the end, I said, get lost. Don't waste my time. Anyway, he'd give me his business card. So we moved forward in time to, to early 1995. And this time a VHS video landed on my desk called Roswell. And it was a movie that had been made about Roswell. I think Sony were the company that were releasing it. And they just sent it for review. It wasn't any big, you know, um, movie at the theatres. It was a, you know, in your local blockbusters or Woolworths. I think they were still open then. And it just rem reminded me of Santa Lee and his story. So I pulled out his business card, rung him up. And he says, yeah. I said, you still got this film? He said, yeah, but you don't believe me. I said, well, you've got to show me it. This time he said, okay, make an appointment with my secretary and come on down. So my wife and I, she was also part of before. We drove down to London, met Santilli in his, his office on Balcombe Street. And hey, presto, shows us a piece of film. Claims it's, you know, the alien filmed in a tent in the desert before it was shipped off. And then over the subsequent weeks, showed us two different autopsy films. Only one has been released on, on TV and then some debris, wreckage. And, I, and I, I, you know, I'm sat there thinking, well, what the hell, you know? So I was also Buford's conference organiser and I already had a conference already booked, all the speakers booked for August of 1995 at Hallam University in Sheffield. So I asked Sam Tilly, I said, what are your intentions? What do you plan to do with this? He said, I'm going to make it into a documentary and just release it myself on video. Uh, so I said, well, will you show it at our conference? And to my amazement, he said, yes. On one condition, he said, you help me with the, you know, with, with the documentary. So we shook hands, there were no money involved, or contracts. Um, I helped him write the, in fact, I wrote the documentary for him. It was narrated by Brian Bressard. And um, the film eventually, the story of it leaked out. And then it just snowballed from there, Craig. I mean, literally. There were, at that point, there was no television involved, but TV soon came in and the checkbooks were flying. And it was released on television in August 1995 around the world. Santali came to our conference, showed it. It was packed. You know, he took questions from the audience. Um, so I was confident that once this thing was out in the public domain, Craig, I could sit back and I say, right, let the information pour in. Somebody's bound to know something about this damn film. Either, oh, my granddad told me about that, or no, that I'm one of the actors, or, you know, I provided the props or whatever. But absolutely nothing happened. Not a thing, one way or the other. 
So, we, you know, Sanjali, you know, said, I'll give you bits of film for analysis. He never did. So we had to work on what we had, which is a video. All the things you see in it are all circa 1947. You know, there's a phone, there's a clock on the wall. We showed it to a whole host of medical people. They, they were pretty impressed with it, to be honest, as did TV companies, not just those. And so we couldn't. You know, lots of people said it's a hoax, but that's an easy option. Um, people accuse me of being uh, in cahoots with Santilli to promote this thing and make a load of money. Uh, and so I took it rather personally. One of the reasons for that is at the same time as this was happening, I was on an extension built on my house. I thought, where's Mantle getting his money from? He didn't have that kind of money. Well, they were right. I didn't. But my wife did. She'd had her own property before we met. It had been, all, it had been uh, rented out for a while, but we now sold it. And we used some of the money of that to build an extension because we're two young kids. You know, it was either build an extension or move. So we, we built the extension. Um, so I, decided, you know, I sat and told Santa, I'll find out, I'll get to the bottom of this. I thought rather quickly, took me a lot of years, to be honest, and we'll jump forward in time. In fact, we I'd proven bits of it were fake, but it all came down to who, who when you sat in Santilli's office, Craig, he was a man who never made anything in his life. Um, he was a buyer and seller. You know, you've got a photograph behind you. Oh, that's the Beatles. I'll, I'll buy that off you and I'll license it from you. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I used, you know, I used, I, I used a, a rather a nickname for it, but he never made anything. It was, yeah. And I thought, well, whoever's made this film, it wasn't Santilli. Maybe he's bought it in good faith and he's been conned. As it all turns out, we found the man that made it. He was a chap, or is a chap called Spiros Malaris. Spiras has a number of strings to his bow. He was trained as a young man as a mechanic, but his passion was magic and filmmaking. And those were his careers as a, a magician and a filmmaker and a businessman. And there's a long story behind it, but it is Spiros who made it. I've been to his home. I've seen his, even seen his diaries from that time, you know, meeting with Sam Tilly at X. Uh, he, he, a storyboard he painted. He's quite a good artist himself. Um, uh, faxes from Kodak. All this kind of stuff. A lot more I could go into, but there's no doubt about it. It, it is 100% fake. Um, Spiros is, is the man who's behind it. There was others involved as well earlier on, not connected to him. The idea didn't originate with him. And um, I released it all in a book called uh, Roswell Alien Autopsy. I've done a revised edition. So what I did with the revised edition, I could put full, I've done it eight by 10 inches. Try my age there, using the old imperial measurements. <laughs> I've no idea what they are in centimeters. Not a clue. I, I still work in 13 inches, Pellet, don't worry about that. <laughs> that. That big by that big, that's it, you know. And, um, but that allowed me to put in full-size copies of some of the letters, the documents, the photographs, faxes so you not only do i summarize them you can see the actual documentation for yourself and uh, spiros were it not for the um, pandemic would have had his own book out last year it's imminent it's ready 
I've seen pictures of it. He's not doing print on demand. He's having, you know, physical copies printed. Right. So waiting for the printer. He's, you know, he's, his book is on the list of things to be done. Yeah. And, and that should be out any time this year, certainly in the summer. So what so, was his motivation for making the film then? Money. 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 I mean, originally, it was just going to be on his home video. Right. So we'd have put it on there with some interviews that he got. I wrote it, bear in mind. I even lined up Kodak in Hemel Hempstead to analyse the film. Santilli didn't live that far from where Kodak lived. He could have driven it and dropped it off himself. That never happened. He paid Brian Blessed, another Yorkshireman, to narrate it. But once the story got out into the public domain, uh, things changed, Craig. We have to remember, this is, this is the X-Files generation. Uh, yeah. And it's then that film, TV, newspapers became involved. To begin with, when it leaked out, they couldn't find Sam Tilly because it didn't mention his company name. But Philip Mantle in Batley, West Yorkshire, I'm in the phone book. Mm. And I literally, I didn't know it had gone out. I just woke up this Sunday morning and the fax machine had just gone into overdrive. There were faxes from newspapers and film companies around the world. And then the phone never stopped ringing for three days. And I mean, literally, I remember one chap, he said, well, I've been trying to get through to you for three days. He says, why don't you get another phone line put in? I said, don't matter how many phone lines I have, there's only me here to answer it, you know? <laughs> and so it was when the television companies came involved, Santilli had a, a private screening of some of the film on May the 5th, 1995, at the London Museum. And there were a lot of film, you know, TV people there. And that, that was basically, he sold it there and then. Uh. Give you one example, Fox paid, Fox in America, they made a, a documentary called Alien Autopsy Fact or Fiction, still on Netflix now. I'm in it. And I think they paid him something like $300,000 plus a share of the home video rights because we're still talking videos at this point yeah, you know yeah. and he sold it to different countries around the world it was in newspapers and magazines some of whom paid for stills uh, and then of course in 2006 he made the movie Alien Autopsy starring Anton Deck those lovable guys from Saturday Night TV you know and again he, I think he made him and his business partner upwards of just on that somewhere around half a million pounds. So when you add all this up, these are only the things that I'm aware of. There'll be other deals that he did that I'm not aware of. We're talking 10, 20 million. Staggering, isn't it? And then this will make you laugh. Just literally as we speak two weeks ago, there is a, a I call it a website because I don't know what the hell to call it, but it's called, I think it's called Bidaware. But it's an online specific auction site. And Santilli put one alleged authentic frame of the alien on there. You can see a picture of it. The starting bids were $1.1 million. Nobody bid on it, but no. that, you know, so I, as a joke, I emailed him and said, I'll give you a tenner. You must be skinned, mate, you know. 
What did he say to that then? Go on. <laughs> well, he just he just he just emailed me back and said, next time you're in London, let's have lunch, Philip. You know, simply, yeah, lunch is on him, obviously. Yeah, he didn't take any offence, and you know, I've, I've got no grudge against him. I've got no axe to grind. No. Um, but it's one of those stories. When I first met Spiros Malaris, when he came out of the woodworking. I said to him, this damn film is never going to go away, you know, Spiros. And he said, ah, don't be daft. Well, he, he, he believes me now. Yeah. Because it crops up in the most unlikely of places. It really does. For example, I think it's two, three years ago, there used to be a UFO exhibition in Blackpool, of yeah. all places. Yeah. And it closed down. And I went to see the, the owner of it, because what you... I, I collect UFO memorabilia. So I went to see if he would sell me some things. And lo and behold, what's he got on display? The, the alien autopsy film. I didn't try and buy it because my wife would have gone mad, you know. <laughs> but it was full size. And, you know, it's in a museum in Japan. In America, they were making alien autopsy cakes for Halloween. And, you know, there's, there's games of it and... What the next thing will be that, that crops up, I don't know. But I, I know something will. Well, it, and and it, you know, it will continue forever. Yeah. The, I mean, from a personal perspective, I mean, I'm, I'm, I was, I'll be honest with you. I mean, I was never, ever, ever convinced about it in the slightest. And yet, obviously, you know, he's obviously made an awful lot of money out of it. Um, I just find it staggering. The, the, well, I mean, it's, it's so embedded in popular culture. Yeah, it is. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. In the X Files, yeah. the Simpsons, the episodes of the, the comedy series Seinfeld, which is usually popular in the States. It's even in that. Yeah. And, a whole host, and what it also did, it spawned a cottage industry mm. of other alien autopsy films that are being made around the world, claiming to be the real thing, of course. Yeah, and they still continue to to appear, you know, from places you've never ever seen it before, mm. and 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 it will continue like that ad infinitum. It really will. Yeah, well, that's it. Is it's an absolutely um, crazy story, really, when you think about it. Can you can we get on to flying disc press? Just tell us a bit about that. Um, yeah, how yeah, that all I came mean, about. Yeah. Uh, um, a friend of mine by the name of John Hansen, who's a retired police detective in the Midlands, he runs his own publishing company called Haunted Skies. I would recommend it to, to anyone. And John had been publishing his own books for a number of years, and he was trying to encourage me to do it. And I said, well, I'm thinking about it, John, but not for a few years yet. I, I want to wait until I retire and then start it. However, in 2015, uh, I, I, in my time, I've also been a magazine editor uh, for three publications. So, I, again, I just know people around the world. A, a Polish colleague of mine sent me a fully written manuscript, not for publication. Uh, he was practicing his written English. His spoken English is pretty good, but he was practicing his written English. He said, well, you look over this for me, Philip. So when I read it, that's a hell of a book. You know, it's called UFOs Over Poland. And I just, you know, I, I, I give him some feedback and I just left it there. Told 
John about it. He said, why don't you publish it? I said, well, I don't know how to go about it. I don't know where to start. He said, well, I'll, I'll show you. So he did. You know, I made some mistakes because I jumped in with both feet. So in November um, 2015, Flying Disc Press was launched. And the first book was UFOs Over Poland by a chap called Peter, Peter Chielabias. You've no, no idea how long I've practiced to try and say that name. From, from a, a Yorkshireman, that's not easy to say, you know. <laughs> but it is a terrific read. It really is. And then in 2016, I took ill, as, as I explained uh, earlier, with the near-death experience. And I got the opportunity to take early retirement. So I did. And then that was it. You know, Flying Dispress was going to be my um, interest, the thing that kept me out from under the wife's feet while I'd retired. So UFOs over Poland was, was followed up swiftly by UFOs over Romania by Dr. Dan Farkas. Again, fascinating read. And my reason for doing this is because the majority of the cases in these books, Craig, you, you would never have read before because of the language barrier. This yeah. was the first time they were being published in English. Mm. And I, again, I made mistakes, but the, the book, you know, the information in the book stands on its own, irrespective of a few typos here and there, you know? Yeah. And of course, there'll have been a lot of stuff from, from, you know, when these countries were part of the Soviet Union that was just suppressed would, would never have got out because because of the, the political situation in those countries, you know, so... Absolutely, uh, UFOs was a banned subject for, for course, yeah. periods uh, in the, the old Soviet Union. So it progressed and it progressed, um, got to the stage where two years ago we opened Flying Dispress in France, my colleague Jean Ribeiro runs that. Uh, Jean is a professional translator, so he speaks English, Italian, and Spanish. And um, he's done now, I think, five or six of our books, which is great because we were only planning on two a year. Right. Then we have Daniel Hernandez in Argentina, who runs Flying Dispress Latin America. Uh, Dario has also published a number of our books in Spanish. So we've got other branches going out there. We've also done, you know, deals with other publishers. We've got one of our books published in Russia. There's two more waiting to be published. They've just held back because of COVID. We've had some published in Romanian, in Italian, uh, Lithuanian. There may well be German. There may well be other languages I've forgotten. But, you know, we've done okay. We've managed to keep afloat during the pandemic. Good. And, um, you know, I've got books out now, more to come. I'm planning for next year, because next year is the 75th anniversary of Flying Saucers. Right. So, hence trying to, I usually find when I try and plan anything, Craig, it, it just fails dismally. <laughs> um, in the past, if I just let things flow, that seems to work all right. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm planning some things, but the rest of it, I'm just going to let and see what happens, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no. it keeps me very busy. Uh, I still research the subject. I still write about it on a regular basis uh, whenever I can. And, um, you know, help others, you know, who are trying to get into the subject or are looking for information or whatever. Yeah. You know, and it takes up a lot of my time. It really does, which I'm happy to say I'm, I'm glad about that. <laughs> 
where can we find you then um, on the internet? Yeah, just flyingdispress.com. That's disc with a K. That'll take you. The reason I use that title, because in the old days, the early days, they were called flying discs. Yeah. And disc with a K at the time, that was the American way of spelling it. So that's hence flying disc press. Um, and, I, I, you know, we've had some luck. We've had a couple of bestsellers on Amazon. Uh, one that's in the process of being made into a documentary series. Another one that's been written up as a TV drama series. And, um, you know, we're, we're hopeful that some of the others will will follow suit. We'll, we'll have to wait and see. So out of all the books that, that you've published, if you had to pick just one to take with you onto a, onto a desert island, which, which one would it be? Well, it's got to be one of mine, surely, you know. <laughs> no, I've got some of my own work on there. For example, I wrote, an, I wrote a novel uh, about alien abductions. It's called Once Upon a Missing Time. Um, that's based on my book, Without Consent, which I wrote with a colleague called Carl Nagatis. Uh, but that Without Consent is all about abduction and missing time cases in the UK. And Alan Godfrey, whom we spoke about earlier, yeah. is in that book. Yeah. Um, I've written a couple of books with my friend Paul Stonehill in the States. Paul's originally from the UK, Ukraine. So one book's Russia's Roswell Incident, speaks for itself. Uh, the other one is Russia's USO, so undersea objects. And that's done well. That's, we've got that in a few different languages. That was the one that got published in Russian. Um, but, you know, there's something for everyone. I've republished some old stuff as well, little things that, that will cost you, you know, a, a fiver. Others are, that are, are, are more expensive. What we've just now been able to do with some of our new books is have them in every format. So we'll have them in Kindle, in paperback, hardback, and audio books. So if you're one of those that doesn't like to read, you know, I should just download it and stick the earphones in and, you know, rather than listen to the kids screaming or the mother-in-law complaining, <laughs> you know, that, and we will continue to do that in the future. So uh, I'm very happy with that. Well, I've had a look at your website and there's a lot of books on there that really piqued my interest when I had a look. So um, I highly recommend that anybody who listens to this podcast to go along and have a look and, and have a look at the body of work you've got on there. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you, Philip. It's been fascinating. It really has. Um, thank you for your insights. You've, you've got some really interesting insights into some very famous cases, stuff that I'd never heard before. Um, and as I say, it's been wonderful to speak to you. Thank you very much. My pleasure, Craig. Thank you. Thank you to Philip for a fascinating and enlightening chat. I really enjoyed talking to him and I hope that you enjoyed this episode of Paranormal Pendle as much as I did. Remember to check out my website at www.craigbryant.co.uk where you can find out more information about my book, this podcast, my research and upcoming projects. Remember to stay safe and remember to keep watching the shadows. <laughs>